welcome back to the History for Atheists podcast. I'm Tim O'Neill, and I'm the author of the History for Atheists blog, where I analyse some of the things many of my fellow atheists get wrong about history in general, and the history of religion in particular. If you're an atheist, or just someone interested in common misconceptions and myths about history, this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome back to History for Atheists. My guest today is Dr. Philip Nothaft. Philip is a fellow of All Souls Oxford and a historian specialising in astronomy, astrology and calendars in late antiquity, the Middle Ages and early modern Europe. He's also the author of a key paper on the question of why Christmas falls on December 25th, which is our main topic today. It's often claimed in pop history that Christians stole the pagan feast day and made it into Christmas. And this is a version of a thesis scholars developed in the late 19th century. But Philip and several other recent scholars have bolstered an alternative theory that seems to fit the evidence better, as he'll discuss with me today. So, Dr. Philip Nottaft, um, thank you very much for joining us for this morning for me, this evening for you. Happy Christmas. Same to you. Thanks for having yeah. me. Um, actually, I don't know what uh, what, what the, the tradition is in in, um, in Europe, but here in Australia, we usually only say Happy Christmas on Christmas Day, is it? Whereas the Americans say it pretty much all month. I don't know what the the, the standard process is in uh, your part of the world. I guess the assumption is that if you see somebody for the last time before Christmas, you say it, but you don't say it constantly. Uh, the Americans sort of, it, it's like a, a month-long festival, but uh, anyway. So thanks for joining us and, and do appreciate your uh, you know, taking the time to discuss this. I know it's something that you, you like to discuss and it's something I spend most of December discussing, particularly on Twitter. So let's talk about the date of Christmas. Now, if I Google origins of Christmas, I will find thousands, literally thousands of articles telling me that the origins of Christmas are in a pagan festival. Though the funny thing is these articles tend to contradict each other about which pagan festival it's based on. But if we're talking about the date of Christmas, I constantly come up against people every year at this time of year that tell me that there was a pagan festival on the 25th of December, that the Christians stole that pagan festival and turned it into Christmas, and that both the date and, and all of the traditions we have associated with Christmas are pagan in origin. But you, a mere historian, so what would you know, uh, you think, uh, and you and others argue that, that that's not true. So before we talk about what you think is correct, can we first talk about what's the origin of that claim, the origin of the claim that it was pagan in origin? I mean, that takes us back to the Reformation. Um, when the Re Reformation happened, some Protestant scholars and, and reformers uh, really tried to apply the Acts to almost the entirety of the existing liturgy, right? And, and, and read everything out that was not scripturally grounded. And of course, most of Catholic liturgy wasn't scripturally grounded in a very uh, a literal sense. And one of the auxiliary arguments that were used, I guess mostly for polemical reasons, was to say that um, Catholic Ritual and practices full of the vestiges of Roman paganism, which is kind of an easy argument to make, you know, given the way the papacy is rooted in in the city of Rome. And in the 15th century, people had started to refer to uh, the Pope as the Pontifex Maximus, which right away creates a bit of a link between the high priest of ancient Rome and and 
the bishops of Rome. And so it became a very common polemical move to, to, to just accuse various accused the Catholic Church in general of, of essentially continuing pagan practices. And Christmas was such an easy target in this regard because uh, pretty much everybody who was educated knew about the Saturnalia. That was probably the single most well-known uh, ancient uh, Roman feast. It's mentioned in many classical sources. Uh, most scholars would have been aware of the Saturnalia by Macrobius, which is a 5th century book, which is literally called the Saturnalia. It takes place at Saturnalia, and, it, and partly it deals with the origins of Saturnalia. So knowledge about the Saturnalia was very common. And uh, a lot of the, Sat the Saturnalia are kind of not notorious for their sort of carnivalesque aspects. And those carnivalesque elements kind of resembled the way Christmas was celebrated in parts of Europe, especially England. Not so much Christmas Day itself, but the season, Christmas tide, the 12 days of Christmas, had various rituals and, and practices attached to them. And of course, lots of eating and drinking and feasting and rowdiness that was very easily linked with Saturnalia, if you squint a little bit. Mm. And so that became an extremely popular narrative, uh, continuing to this day, right? That's still out there very much, as you said. But in scholarly circles, it fell out of favor and was replaced with something else which is the idea that the, the Feast of the Roman Sun God, which was exactly on December 25th, uh, is the precursor to Christmas. That's an idea that was first floated in the early 18th century by a scholar named Jablonski, and then was developed further and made even more respectable in the 19th century, especially by Hermann Usner, who was an important uh, historian of religion at the end of the 19th century. And it remains the prevailing narrative for most of the 20th century. Hmm. Thanks. So good summary. So let's go back to Usner and so on. What, what was their argument? Um, because the Saturnalia thing doesn't really work because Saturnalia doesn't actually overlap with December 25th. No matter how many times people try to assure me that that doesn't matter, it actually does. And it certainly mattered back in, in ancient times when the dates were kind of important. But the the, the theory of, of you know, the, what we call the, the history of religion school, so Usner's uh, German uh, scholarly context. What was the argument and what was it based on? Was it simply that this there was this feast day on the 25th, the Feast of Sol Invictus, and therefore that was appropriate, or was there more to it, to, to it than that? I, I think it was to a large extent uh, propped up by a certain theory of how not just Christianity developed, but other religions in the Roman Empire, the way Usner looked at this uh, was a, uh, the, he thought there was a kind of competition between Christianity and other religions that, uh, that in some sense were quite similar to Christianity. He had this idea that Roman religion in general slowly moved towards a kind of henotheism or even monotheism uh, in the course of late antiquity. And he viewed Mithraism for one thing, but also Sol Invictus as examples of a tendency for non-Christian Romans to focus their worship and their sort of uh, their whole religious life around one particular deity and the idea that Christianity that, that religion in general becomes more intellectualized in this period is also part of his, his, his narrative and so his idea is except essentially that that Christians by placing a feast day on the same date as the already existing Sol Invictus day are creating a kind of are making a move uh, uh, as part of a competition in a wider religious marketplace. A uh, very successful move because uh, apparently this new feast day on, 20, on December 25th was so attractive that other non-Christians started to join 
or it maybe kept Christians from from defecting to the other side, right? Uh, it's not so clearly articulated what exactly the intention of the Catholic Church was, but what Usner made very, what he emphasized quite a bit is that it was a, a, a kind of way of, of competing and uh, and essentially supplanting existing pagan religions. And uh, the evidentiary basis, I think, wasn't ex ex exactly that important um, because it didn't have much to go on. Of course, there was a reference to uh, the Sol Invictus feast in, in one fourth century calendar. Uh, there were a few other references to Sol Invictus and then the single most sort of uh, eloquent piece of evidence that Usno or anybody else was able to refer to is a marginal gloss in the 12th century Syriac manuscript, which essentially gives an encapsulated sort of precise, a, a short version of the history of religions hypothesis. But of course, uh, it's very difficult to reasonably rely on a 12th century marginal gloss and, and imagine that whoever wrote this marginal gloss really knew what was going on in Rome in the 4th century. So uh, long story short, all Usner had was really a model of what happened in the, sort of the wider religious atmosphere of the fourth century, and not so much in terms of hard evidence. So, so just to go back to that that document that you mentioned, the twelfth century one. So, this is a marginal gloss in a, a, of a work, so a, a marginal note of a work uh, by Jacob Basilibi, so a Syriac work in the twelfth century. So, centuries after and a long way away from where and when we're talking about. But that marginal gloss does say those guys over there in the West um, basically appropriated a, a uh, pagan festival of the of the unconquered sun on December 25th, on the calendar of January, so December 25th, and uh, and this is the origin of their, their Western Christmas, and they celebrate Christmas on the wrong day because we celebrate it over here in the East on the right day. That sounds like pretty much what Usner was arguing. So why can we why can we sort of maybe disregard that? So this uh, unknown Syriac author, he doesn't mention uh, Sol Invictus. He was probably completely aware, unaware of this deity. In fact, even in the in the West, uh, it took a long time a long time until the 18th century for the existence of this Sol Invictus cult to be, be to become part of the scholarly discussion because it's so poorly attested. Uh, yeah. That's why before the 18th century, everybody talked about Saturnalia. That was much better known. So the Syriac author, all he knows that is that December 25th was associated with the solstice, and he argued or assumed that this date was an occasion for solar worshippers to engage in solar worship. Uh, it's a very sort of very general notion, and it's not surprising that somebody in Syria would say something like that, because in antiquity, uh, Syria was indeed a center of solar worship. Uh, there were several cultic sites in Syria, in Edessa and Emesa, uh, where solar worship uh, went on, um, probably much uh, uh, with a much longer tradition, probably than in Rome, and it's quite possible that he had some notion of that, even though that's not for sure, because the the purpose of his argument is, of course, polemically somebody who thinks that January sixth is the correct nativity date of of Christ, uh, which uh, used to be a widely accepted date in the East in late antiquity before it was phased out in the fifth century, but it continued to be celebrated on that. Uh, the nativity continued to be on the on, on January sixth uh, in some churches. The only holdouts that exist nowadays are the Armenian uh, Apostolic Church in Armenia, and then separately uh, in 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 Jerusalem. Yeah, and so okay. the, the context of this marginal gloss is somebody who still adheres to this alternative tradition and tries to discredit uh, the um, mainstream uh, date of December twenty fifth. 
But given the large chronological and geographical chasm, there is no good reason to assume that he had any privileged access to information about what happened in late antiquity. At most, he made he might have heard, and again, that's just a wild guess, he might have heard maybe through intermediaries uh, of Epiphanius of Salamis's uh, work, um, which, uh, which is from the late 4th century, who also kind of disparagingly refers to December 25th as a solstice date and who's also in favor of January uh, the 6th as the actual nativity date. So maybe that's an echo of Epiphanius, but that's just a guess on my part. Actually, that would make some sense. Sorry, my mistake. You're right. Uh, the the Barcelibi note doesn't mention uh, Sol Invictus. It simply says the birthday of the sun. So you're quite right. But what I was thinking of was a slightly earlier reference in uh, that work attributed to John Chrysostom, the solstices yeah. and equinoxes. And it says, our Lord too is born in the month of December, the 8th before the calendar of January, that's 25th of December. But they, the pagans, call it the birthday of the unconquered. So who is more unconquered than our Lord? Or if they say it's the birthday of the sun, we may say he is the son of justice. So this is, I suppose, could be argued as another link to support the the the, uh, the, the, the older usener basis theory. What do you make of that piece of evidence? I mean, I don't think that that piece of evidence tells us anything uh, either way. It, it simply attests to a situation which existed in the fourth century and, and possibly slightly before and slightly after, where two feasts coexisted on December 25th, namely Christmas and the Natalis Invicti, uh, which is a feast that is partly you know the birth date of the sun, which makes sense because it was associated with the sol- with the winter solstice. It was probably also the feast of the dedication of a temple, uh, because Natalis, in an ancient Roman context, uh, often refers to the dedication date of of a temple for a particular deity. And we know that the Emperor Aurelius, in around two seven four, dedicated a, a, a temple for Saul, the sun god. And it's quite likely that these later references to Natalis and Victi are in part a reference to uh, the date on uh, on which this dedication happened, which then also became the birthday of, of the sun god. Uh, so, yeah, those two feasts coexisted and it's completely uh, possible. And I'm very happy to actually accept that. I was never of the opinion that the idea that there might have been some cross currents and influences between uh, Sol Invictus and Christianity is completely absurd. On the contrary, it makes a lot of sense to a certain extent. But uh, influence doesn't mean that, uh, for instance, December 25th as the nativity date was only selected on that basis. Uh, what I believe and what I think quite a few other scholars currently believe is that there were prev- there, there must have been other factors involved. But as you uh, correctly say, that is an interesting source which just attests to the awareness of Christians that there is some other uh, uh, religious aspect to this particular date in the Roman calendar and there is to a certain degree a competition going on between Christians and non-Christians that is undeniable, but that is not enough to support uh, uh, a fully-fledged history of religions hypothesis without any qualifications. Which which kind of brings us to probably the main piece of evidence that this all centres on, which is the, the chronograph of 354. So that's the 4th century document that you alluded to before, which yeah. says on on uh, for its entry uh, for the for uh, December 25th that this was... Uh, this was to be, you know, 30 games, so 30, 30 chariot races were ordered for the birthday or the Natalis of the Unconquered One. So there was definitely, pretty clearly from this, there was definitely some kind of uh, of soul 
um, festival celebration on 20, the 25th of December. It involved chariot races. And Natalis is often translated as a birthday, but you are saying possibly a reference to the dedication of a temple. Um, we know that Aurelian did dedicate a temple century before. Uh, and so you're, you're saying, okay, this is possibly a, a, a celebration of that dedication. But we've got a sun, yeah, we've got sun worship in a form of uh, dedicated chariot races on the 25th of December. So could this be what the Christians appropriated? Well, well it, it could be. Um, I'm almost tempted to go off on a huge tangent talking about this chronograph because it's actually a very complicated story, right? Many people refer to this chrono chronograph when they talk about this subject. I don't think have a very clear understanding of what this source is. Um, well, please do. <laughs> the source that we're talking about right now is primarily a calendar. It's a calligraphically and produced and illustrated calendar that was made by a, a calligrapher named Philokalos for a senator named Valentinus. And the reason it's dated to 354 is because in manuscripts, it appears side by side with a number of different lists and, and smaller texts, which all have some kind of historical and chronographical or chrono chronological uh, significance. And uh, there's this theory that this Philokalos character didn't just produce this one calendar, which contains Roman feast days and is very non-Christian in character, but also uh, produ it produced an entire codex, which contained all of this other material and satellite texts and lists and so on. And then supposedly this codex uh, survived into the Middle Ages, into the ninth century, when a very faithful copy of it was made, which then survived into the early modern period, when lots of other copies were made and also drawings of the illustrations that were originally accompanying this calendar. And what we have now are mostly just these early modern copies, plus a couple of uh, medieval fragments, but the medieval fragments only cover a tiny percentage of the entire uh, calendar codex. Sure. And this used to be widely accepted, but more recently scholars have started to scrutinize the transmission history of this entire uh, anthology of material and now it looks that it looks like this transmission history was much more complicated and we can be much less confident about what was actually in the original fourth century codex and also whether there was such a codex to begin with it's likely but there are far more question marks surrounding this than there were even a couple of years ago what this means for the calendar is that we have to a bit uh, we have to be a bit more cautious the year 354 derives from the fact that some of these lists, we have, for instance, a list of consuls, we have an Easter table, we have a list uh, of prefects of the city of Rome, we have a list, we have a list of Roman bishops, we have the uh, burial dates of bishops, we have a list of martyrs, all, all sorts of stuff. And some of these lists end in the year 354. Hmm. Uh, other of these lists end at an unspecified, other, other lists don't necessarily end in that year, but they match this general context. And if we assume that the calendar from the beginning was a fellow traveler of these lists, we can say it existed by the year 354. That is still very likely, but it's not like we can, it's not that we can say definitively this calendar was drawn up in 354. In fact, I find it likely that it, that it is in fact an older calendar, which was at some point copied and then bound together with these other lists. Uh, the content of the calendar, I have to say, does match the, the reign of the uh, Emperor Constantius II quite nicely, which is, I think, from 337 to 361. Of course, 354 falls somewhere in the middle of this time period. So it's still perfectly legitimate to date this source to roughly the middle of the 4th century. 
But I just wanted to go on this tangent to explain how difficult <laughs> it can sometimes be to assign dates to ancient sources. And, and we deal with material that is so fraught with difficulties. There's also, of course, always there's always this looming possibility that stuff has been interpolated into at some point. Uh, dates are particularly prone to be retroactively added to texts. Fortunately, with a mostly or almost exclusively pagan calendar, uh, we are probably a bit on the safer side because the idea that a medieval scribe just invents a pagan feast and puts it in a calendar like that is a bit less likely. Uh, but yeah, we have a calendar from the middle of the fourth century, which is our very first reference to this feast. And since Natalis has this connotation of being a dedication commemorative or anniversary date for temples, it is by, by no means absurd to assume that we're dealing with a feast that goes back to the Emperor Aurelian. Um, uh, Stephen Heimans has, has uh, cast a lot of doubt at this possibility, uh, but other scholars have recently pushed back against that. And I think overall, that is still a pretty good hypothesis. But sure. Heimans is certainly right that we have to be super careful uh, yeah. in, in, drawing, in drawing conclusions from this material. So, well, calendars, thanks, sorry. Thanks for the, the the digression on that because actually I've I've done some reading on the the chronograph, but I wasn't aware of that 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 last point. And we love a pedantic digression here at History for Atheists. <laughs> so I'm all for it. But you just you just touched on a very interesting point there, which is okay. We've got a reference in the fourth century of some kind of celebration on December 25th associated with the sun god. But how far does that get us, I suppose, is the key point that all this turns on. And you mentioned Heimann's, who I think is amazing. I'm not, I agree with you. I'm not sure I'm absolutely convinced where he pushes back on the whole Aurelian thing. I think that's most likely. But that aside, um, this is, this is the, the, the point of issue because he argues, and I believe you agree, that this is a new festival. It's not some ancient soul festival that, is, that has been going on for centuries. This is actually new. It, it was instituted probably about a century before. Am I right in saying that, that that's kind of where things stand for you as well? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't see any reason to assume it predates the reign of the Emperor Aurelian. Um, there is no evidence of a Roman solstice festival. Uh, I think one another tangent one can uh, embark on here is to point out that not every pre-Christian religious culture was hugely interested in equinoxes and solstices, right? There's this perception that many people have that all pagans everywhere were completely gung-ho about celebrating the stations of the sun because there's this 19th century idea that ancient paganism was all about nature worship. Mm. Uh, that model doesn't work uh, if you try to apply it to ancient Roman religion. Uh, which, which operated very differently. The, the ancient Romans in Republican and pre-Republican times, of course, had festivals that originally had some connection with the harvest cycle, uh, which is something completely mundane. But uh, the ancient Roman calendar before the Julian calendar was not very astronomically aligned at all. It was notionally a, a lunar calendar, but it didn't even align with the lunar phases, and even less so with the seasons. And there's no evidence that Romans ever tried to stage any kind of celebrations around solstices and equinoxes as astronomical events. They simply celebrated at particular dates in their calendar. And mm. those dates could actually change the seasonal context quite a bit. And so it's really only with the uh, introduction of the Julian calendar in 45 BC that they even have a basis for 
in their religious uh, practices for paying more attention to the solar cycle and the stations of the sun or the, the four cardinal points of the solar year. And, that, and in the Roman Mediterranean uh, world, it actually is noticeable that after uh, the first century BC, so during the first one to the first three centuries, essentially, of, of, of the common era, that, that religious practices and religious iconography becomes more astronomi astronomical or more astrologically and cosmologically charged. There are more references to the zodiac, to the sun, to the moon, and to the planets, and so on. And the Julian calendar, which is uh, which has a which is a solar calendar, which is really the first calendar of antiquity that actually tries to uh, follow the annual course of the sun through intercalation probably had a lot to do with that, right? It mm. actually put religious worship on a new basis, on a new calendrical basis that didn't exist before. And so from that vantage point alone, you can sort of argue it's likely that this whole idea of having a solstice festival or, or of worshipping or commemorating the birth of the sun on a particular date uh, is, a, is a late development that, that, that is not hugely deeply rooted in, in Roman religion. It's a bit different in further east where solar worship has a much longer pedigree. Hmm. Okay, so so what that means is effectively uh, we've got this one reference to a, a, a festival of some kind associated with the sun on December twenty fifth, but what we don't have is any earlier references to solstice festivals on that date. We don't have. We should point out that that December twenty fifth was sort of like the traditional date of the solstice, even though astronomically it isn't. Um, and they knew that, but they they kind of celebrate. Well, they they marked it, didn't celebrate. They marked it on the twenty fifth. But what we don't have is earlier references to any kind of solstice, religious solstice festival on the twenty fifth before this one. Yeah. So this seems to be relatively new. And then we get to the problem of, okay, so when did Christians start uh, marking December 25th as the birth of Jesus? And how does that line up with this evidence? So maybe if you could talk us through that. Yes, of course. Uh, so that what you said is entirely correct. Uh, everything points to December 25th as a pagan solar festival uh, being a very late uh, invention that doesn't predate the 270s. But for proponents of the history of religions uh, hypothesis, that was never much of a problem because they assumed that all of the references to Christ being born on that date are later than that. Right. And more recent research, I think, has shown that we cannot be confident uh, about that. In fact, uh, there was a time when this was already uh, well known that there are references to December 25th that are earlier but those gradually got eliminated and and passed or, or essentially got written off as interpolations. Uh, but there are still pieces of evidence there that we need to consider. And I think the two sources that are most important here are the various texts that are attributed to Hippolytus of Rome. And then there's also the Chronicle of Julius Africanus. Hmm. Um, the, the Chronicle of Julius Africanus is a pretty straightforward story. It takes less time to explain. Uh, he was one of the first... Uh, chronicler uh, amongst the Christians who wrote an entire chronicle that starts with the creation of the world and ends with the present. And it was very influential in the Greek-speaking East. Unfortunately, we have the, the chronicle no longer exists. All we have are fragments, which means citations in other people's works. And you have to work very hard to puzzle together the pieces of this chronicle to get some idea what it actually said. And there's always the possibility that the people who cite this chronicle in later centuries 
alter the content. So there's lots of uncertainty. But the pieces of the puzzle that are still available, the pieces of this mosaic, suggest that Julius Africanus began every year in his chronicle with uh, March 25th, which just like December 25th was traditionally the summer solstice, March 25th was traditionally the vernal equinox in Roman calendrical tradition. And there's a long tradition in Christian, early Christian writing of assuming that the world was created on this date, whether it was the first day of creation or the fourth day of creation when the sun was made, it is almost consistently associated with March 25th. So it's no surprise that if Julius Africanus would have done exactly the same. So his years begin on that date, and it's also pretty obvious from the existing fragments that he counted exactly five and a half millennia between the creation of the world and the incarnation of Christ, which is another idea that precedes him, actually. So you have this very round interval between these two cosmologically very significant events, And it seems that he also made the incarnation the beginning of one of these years, which makes sense if you have a round number of years between the start of your chronicle and the incarnation. He refers to the incarnation as sarkosis, which in Greek means exactly the same as incarnation. It's it's an exact verbal equivalent. Mm. And if that means conception, which I think is more likely than the alternative, then that would mean that he assumed that Christ was born at least close to December 25th. Sure. So, 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 so psychosis from the Greek psycho meaning body, yep. flesh. Yep. So this is where he became flesh. That would make sense as being a reference to conception rather than a reference to birth. Is that is that the argument? That's the argument. And okay. if that's so, then we have a very early attestation, not of December 25th, but of a chronological framework that basically dictates that the birth must be somewhere near that date. Yeah, because conceived on on uh, March twenty fifth means nine months later he's born on December twenty fifth. So it's implied rather than stated, but it, right, it's right, yeah. implied. Okay, gotcha. And and uh, that is uh, uh, just to follow up uh, with a quick note. That is also interesting in light of a number of other sources that set in the at the end of the second century and continue into the third century. That all in some way or another seem to imply that Christ was born in winter, and the earliest uh, nativity celebration that we know of, which is Epiphany, which also probably begins in the 3rd century, uh, also falls in winter on January 6th. So this idea that Christ was born in winter has quite a few sources pointing towards it. Hmm. Um, So Julius Africanus was not isolated if he thought that. Okay, so he's working in a context. So what about the other other works you mentioned, the ones attributed to Hippolytus of Rome? How do they fit in? That's not a, a difficult case. Um, we, ha- we have so many problems with these sources. So with Hippolytus, uh, we have a name that is attached to a whole slew of different texts. It's unlikely that they're all by him. Uh, he's associated with a Christian community in Rome in the early 3rd century, although there's a theory that the author himself came from the East somehow. It's a very hard uh, uh, problem to get to the bottom of because um, you can essentially have all sorts of different theories, which works were written by the same guy, or maybe there were several different authors called Hippolytus. We can put this uh, aside because there is a very interesting epigraphically uh, uh, preserved source, which is an inscription on a statue, which is quite straightforwardly datable to the third century. That's a statue that's now at the entrance of the Vatican Library. Uh, It is essentially a statue of a seated figure on a throne. Uh, The upper part of the torso uh, was actually destroyed. Uh, But then in the 16th century, when the statue got rediscovered, a new 
body was essentially put on, on top of it. And now it now looks like a bearded man who supposedly is Hippolytus. In reality, it was probably a, a statue of a woman originally. But uh, that's not important. The reason the 16th century archaeologists believed that's a statue of Hippolytus is because of the inscription, which is a list of works, some of which look a bit like works, to judge by the title, look like works written by Hippolytus or one of these different Hippolytuses. And more importantly, there are two uh, calendrical tables on this uh, statue, on the throne of the statue. One is a table of uh, Passover dates, basically a, a table of Easter full moons, and the other is a table of Easter dates. And both of these are based on a 112-year cycle. And there are references to this type of cycle uh, in early Christian literature, in Eusebius and Jerome, and they both uh, ascribe this uh, cycle to Hippolytus. And we have a much, much later uh, medieval Syriac manuscript, which essentially gives us a carbon copy of that inscription, attributing it to Hippolytus of Rome. So it's pretty clear that there's a connection between this Easter cycle and Hippolytus, and the cycle, the lunar part of the cycle, begins in the year 222, which is the first year of the reign of Alexander Severus, and that's also confirmed by written sources. So we have an inscription that obviously wasn't uh, interpolated into because it's the original uh, inscription, and it gives us a very interesting window into the way early Christians conducted chronological research, because once they had this tableau of Easter full moons, which is essentially the date of Passover calculated for uh, a year-by-year -year basis, because that date changes in the uh, relative to the Julian calendar, so you have to need you need essentially need a table to look up when Passover will take place in the Julian calendar. Hmm. And if you have this tableau, you can also apply it to the past. You can essentially use this cycle to to uh, extrapolate towards much earlier dates, and that's exactly what one author or user of this table did, he annotated a whole slew of different biblical Passovers and assigned them to different years in this table. And that includes the birth or conception, possibly, and the crucifixion of Jesus. And the crucifixion, for instance, is assigned to March 25th in AD 29. And that is very, very interesting because this crucifixion date of March 25th, AD 29, became extremely widespread in the Latin West. It became the canonical tradition. The year 8029 is sort of phased out in the 5th century, roughly speaking, but the date remains canonical throughout the entire Middle Ages. And what this inscription does is essentially give us an explanation of how it was arrived at. Because without this inscription, right, you have no idea why Christians are so convinced that Christ was born on, well, sorry, that, that, he, that he was crucified on this particular date, right? Where does this come from? Uh, but thanks to this Easter cycle, we actually have an hypothesis of how they might have tried to figure that out using a kind of astronomical calendrical method. And it, that is an interesting data point because there's this obvious hypothetical connection between March 25th and December 25th. And that's one data point that definitely needs to be looked at. Uh, sorry, uh, please. Yes, yeah, yeah, so, so just wanted to elaborate on that point because it, that, then the question is, okay, March 25th, as the date for his death, we've got an establishment for that. How do you make the jump between that and what seems to have happened from the, the evidence from Africanus we were talking about before, which is associating that date with the date of his conception? How does that work? So um, the, the short, I mean, I, I, there is no direct evidence that would explain this, and that has often been used as an argument against the so-called calculation hypothesis. There is this, like this arbitrary decision to parallelize the crucifixion and the conception. I think there are potentially two explanations here. 
Uh, one has to do with the prior existing assumption that Christ must have been born in winter. And there was a way of establishing that assumption or justifying it using biblical exegesis, because there's a story in the Gospel of Luke about the conception of John the Baptist that was often read to imply that this episode happened in autumn. And we can talk about that. But let's just uh, put this to one side real quick, because uh, there's another possibility here that needs to be uh, that needs to be considered a little bit more. Uh, which is the importance of March 25th as the date of the creation, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, there's a strong tendency in early Christianity and also in medieval Christianity to, to treat Adam and Christ as typological counterparts and treat Adam as a, as a precursor of Christ. Adam uh, had his fall. Uh, the fall of man happened on the sixth day of creation, according to Christian tradition, because the assumption is that he was created on that date and immediately messed up, right? He didn't even stay one <laughs> In paradise for one day, uh, he got expelled on the same day on which he was created. That is a very common assumption in Christian exegetical tradition. And Christ died on that day of the week. So we have one chronological parallel. And it seems likely to me, at least, and Julius Africanus also points in this direction, that there was this temptation to assume that the creation of the world had uh, and the... uh, incarnation of christ are uh, events that stand in some kind of typological relationship and that the world was essentially recreated when when christ was incarnated and that might be part of the reason why putting the conception on the same date or at, at the same time was maybe attractive that speculation although it's borne out to a certain extent by the way later christians write about these issues uh, there, there's another point I wanted to make, which is that Hippolytus also gives us a, possi- a possible uh, uh, indication that December 25th was already regarded to be the, the uh, date of birth at his time uh, for two reasons. One is uh, that he is, his name is also attached to a commentary on the book of Daniel, which is in fact the earliest preserved Christian commentary on a book of the Old Testament, which yeah. was probably written quite soon after 200. If that's true, it's an exceptionally early text. And there's a passage in that commentary, which once again mentions these 5,500 years between the creation of the world and the incarnation of Christ. But it also mentions uh, the birth. And in most manuscripts, that birth is explicitly dated to December 25th. However, there's one manuscript, which is one of the earliest, which doesn't have this additional information and then the earliest manuscript actually has two dates, December 25th and uh, uh, a fragment of another date. And most scholars believe or have believed ever since the 19th century that this is the result of an interpolation, which can happen very easily. Uh, because once Christians are convinced that, that December 25th is the correct date, they have, there's a temptation to just insert that into texts where, where the date wasn't included or maybe another date was included, and that gets replaced with the supposedly correct date. This can happen very easily. If you if you study textual transmission, you find examples like that a lot. Yeah. So we can't rely on that passage, unfortunately, which is a uh-huh. big shame. But then Tom Schmidt, a couple of years ago, uh, looked a bit closer at the so-called Chronicle of Hippolytus. And this Chronicle of Hippolytus, which is, again, very badly preserved, unfortunately, is very closely linked with this Easter table that I mentioned earlier. So the okay. chronological intervals between all of these Passovers that are inscribed in, in, on that statue are the same as found in this chronicle. So there's a clear connection between them. And, and Tom Schmidt found a passage which can be read to imply 
that there's a nine-month interval between the date of the creation and the birth of Christ. If that's the correct reading of this passage, which I think is possible, then that's yet another uh, another indication that this December 25th nativity tradition is very, very old. It goes back to the uh, at least to the 230s, but probably sure, earlier. Okay. Uh, now that's that's important, but yep. uh, it there's still this question: Why winter? Right? Because you could, of course, also have a similar, you know, parallelism between the creation and the incarnation if you uh, if you uh, read incarnation as referring to the birth of Christ. That wouldn't sure. make, that, that wouldn't make a huge difference. And I think that's where exegesis plays an important role. That's where this passage in Luke plays an important role. And sort of my main contribution to this entire scholarly scholarly debate has been to essentially put uh, um, a magnifier on that particular issue and show that this particular reading of the Gospel of Luke was much more widespread in uh, in early Christianity that people have assumed because it's usually the argument used to be that this that this reading of, of Luke, which implies that John the Baptist was conceived in autumn, which would implicitly put the birth of Christ in winter, that this mm. reading is very late. It is an ex post facto justification of the already existing traditions of celebrating uh, Christmas in winter and, and having the Annunciation in March and so on. But, but I think that that misreading of Luke is quite old. And if that's true, then uh, that would have been a factor towards pushing uh, the conception uh, uh, it, it, or towards putting it on on this March date, hmm. because that's the only thing that's left, right? If you already assume that Christ was born in winter, you have to put the conception in spring. In spring. And and yeah. if if that's true, that's pr- pretty much your answer. Why uh, the the these dates line up the way they do? Yeah. If does yeah. that make any sense? Look, it absolutely does, and it's it's interesting. Um, and, and thanks for laying that out because it is quite complex. And as you say, there's there's inference from evidence, but there's it, it, it's 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 kind of a series of inferences that kind of line up in one direction. And what it means is that we effectively, I suppose, to summarise, is that we have all of this stuff happening in the Christian sphere pointing towards December 25th and, and and eventually aligning on December 25th as the date of his birth before we have a, a Roman emperor instituting a very new festival on that date. So all of this is happening before the, the Roman uh, pagan festival of the sun. So it's not these guys stealing that. It, it, this is all happening quite separate from that. Um but, uh, uh, you know, the interesting thing, I was just thinking while you were going through this, and I've said this before, one of the difficulties with debunking common misconceptions about history is the common misconception stories are usually very simple and easy to understand. You know, they stole a Roman festival. Simple. What you just described is not simple. <laughs> it's quite complicated and requires a lot of, of uh, understanding of how all this stuff works, of how manuscript transmission works, how how, uh, how, how people thought about time, it's very difficult to get your head around. This is one of the things I often struggle with, particularly on Twitter, where you've got 120 characters to try and debunk something. It's almost impossible. Yes. Whereas you can state the, the myth very, very simply. Yes. The, the thing about the origins of Christmas is not just one question. It's at least three different questions, right? First question is, when and why did Christians decide that December 25th is the right date for the actual historical date of Christ's birth? That's one question. The second is, how and when did the church decide to make that nativity date 
the occasion of an actual event in the liturgical year? When did this become an ecclesiastical feast? Mm. That's potentially a completely different question. Different question. Answer. Yeah. And then the third one is, where, where do our Christmas customs come from? Yeah. And there's this tendency to conflate all three questions because the assumption is they all have the same answer. It's extremely unlikely. True. Just on that second question, that's actually quite a good point. When do we start to see a kind of an, a, an ecclesiastical, a liturgical celebration of Christmas on December 25th? Yeah, that, that's an extremely difficult one. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not convinced that Christmas was a thing in the third century, even though we have all these potentially very early references to Christ being born at the very least in winter, but quite probably, quite possibly on, on December 25th, I find this likely, although one has to be a bit cautious about this for, for reasons that we can go into even further. Sure. But I, I, I don't see evidence that Christmas was a thing in the third century. Um, the earliest sort of robust evidence that we have are sermons. Uh, there's a sermon from the early 360s. If we, if we correctly attribute the sermon to the person we think held the sermon, which was a bishop in North Africa called Optatus. Yeah. And then what is, what is even more robust are a couple of sermons uh, from the early 380s uh, from the East, from Antioch and Constantinople. And, and these Eastern sermons, especially one held by Chrysostom in, in Antioch in 386, points out that the congregation in Antioch had just begun celebrating Christmas on that date, and that it's a tradition that had come over from the West. So <laughs> it was not, not native to the East. It came from Rome, uh, uh, apparently. And that makes sense because uh, December 25th is also attested in some of the lists of the chronograph of 354. So the calendar that we talked about has the, the pagan feast, and then uh, some of the other lists uh, mention well, the, the, the consular list mentions uh, the birth of Christ on that date, although that could be an interpolation. And then there's a list of martyrs, which begins with the birth of Christ on December 25th. And, and actually, actually are, mentions, I think it actually mentions born in Bethlehem in Judea, I think is the, the, so it's quite explicit. Yeah. Right, yes. And since the list of martyrs is sort of a semi-official ecclesiastical document, yeah. uh, people have assumed that is probably that, the presence of the date in this list and even being at the beginning of the list kind of implying that we have a sort of uh, a liturgical year that begins on December 25th, although that's, that's speculation, that yeah. this presupposes that Christmas is already an official feast in Rome. Uh, because you have to be very careful just because a text mentions that Christ was born on that date doesn't mean they have a feast, especially knowing how skeptical Christians in the third century were about birth dates, whether it's True. birth dates of persons or birthdays of individuals or of gods. Uh, yeah. We have a whole sort of slew of, of authors who make fun of that idea. So yeah. we, we have to be very cautious here. The, the chronograph attestations could point to the existence of Christmas as a liturgical feast, uh, but it's only the sermons that a bit later that definitely uh, support that Christmas was already an event in the, in the liturgical year. Having said that, we know nothing about how Christmas was celebrated apart from the fact that people went to church and listened to sermons. Yeah. Right, that that is very disappointing. If if the whole reason you're having this de debate is to prove that what people are doing in the 21st century on Christmas <laughs> Day has anything to do with what happened in the fourth century, which which brings us to your your, your last point about you know the third issue, which is you know ha the origins of how we celebrate it, and this is something that I I kind of have I've got into a lot of detail on elsewhere. Uh, because anyone, you know, a lot of people who, who just get their information from the internet would assume that 
Saturnalia is pretty much where it all began. You know, Saturn was he's basically Santa, and everyone was feasting and decking the halls with boughs of holly and uh, giving each other gifts and um, and setting up Christmas trees and so on. Most of which is complete nonsense. Um, but what are you, what are your what are your thoughts on uh, on on the claims that are made about everything that we do at Christmas being pagan in origin? Yeah, I mean the big problem I have are the geographical gaps. There are of course also huge chronolo- chronological gaps uh, between yeah. the last attestation of any Saturnalia tradition, for instance, and the earliest attestation of the parallel traditions that we find in Christianity. I mean, the most plausible one or the most interesting one is, of course, uh, Lord of Misrule and the Boy Bishop, uh, which uh, are traditions that are tested in some parts of Europe during the Christmas period, not on Christmas Day itself, but sort of the, the 12th tide period. Mm. Uh, they look a bit like the uh, Saturnalia print caps, yep. if you squint a little bit. But the problem is, why do we find these traditions in certain pockets of Europe? Why don't we find evidence of that in Italy, right, where, where Saturnalia uh, originated from? That's always the thing you have to bear in mind. Uh, a lot of these, these discussions are completely detached from geography and also mm. from, from, from chronology. So uh, without a, a plausible link has to explain how a tradition travels from one part of the world to another, but is not attested at its place of origin. That, that is an obvious problem, right? And so without yeah. these kinds of attestations and, 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 and evidence that can help us create these links, we just have to be agnostic. Yeah, look, I think that's a really good point. It's one that a lot of people don't grasp. They, they see a parallel, even if the parallel isn't actually real. But even if it is, you know, like, as you say, the, the Saturnalia Princeps tradition and the Boy Bishop tradition or the Lord of Misrule traditions, they're pretty close parallels. Does that mean derivation? Um, uh, that one is one I will say is is probably yeah is a maybe. I think there's yeah. there's, there's, there's potential, um, but I always then then caveat that by saying, but in hierarchical societies, it makes sense that you would have a similar sort of tradition arising in different places without a connection, because we see plenty of traditions that are pressure valves for uh for hierarchy so you have the, the the court jester tradition you have various others native american um have native american traditions are the same so so is it a parallel maybe is it is it a derivation that's that's even an even bigger maybe the other one that i think is is a possibility is the gift giving tradition which sat earlier that may may be connected to various gift giving traditions that have now become part of christmas so there's the one on the epiphany with the magi uh, which is sort of a Southern European tradition. Then you've got the St. Nicholas one, which is the origin of our Christmas gift giving. Now, are they connected? Don't know. Um, are they connected to, to Saturnalia? Possibly. The dates don't match up very well, but maybe there's a memory there. Or people just like giving each other gifts. <laughs> just, you know, yeah. how, how can we tell? You know? Yeah, I think in Italy, at least in parts of Italy, there was also a gift giving tradition on St. Lucy's Day, which is December oh, yeah. 19th. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the you know, as you know, and as many people uh, know, gift giving on these saint days is usually connected to stories told about the saints, and and gift giving on on January sixth is connected to the adoration of the Magi. Uh, there are pretty good independent reasons why Christians develop these gift giving traditions. You don't even need uh, a Roman feast to explain why these exist. And uh, yeah. since the gift giving on Christmas is certainly not an Italian invention or a uh, 
you know, we, I always think about Italy first when I think about Saturnalia, because almost all our evidence concerning Saturnalia is, of course, from, from the city of Rome. Of course, it was also celebrated in other parts of the empire. But it is, is remarkable that Saturnalia left so little traces in Italian holiday traditions. But then you go further north <laughs> to England, and all of a sudden you have these supposed parallels, right? That, that, that always throws me off. Yeah, it, uh, it, with, it, just, it just doesn't quite connect. Yeah. Does it? yeah. Um, with uh, with the gift giving, since since we can sort of independently explain why these gift giving traditions originated, we don't really need Saturnalia. Uh, that, that would be my point. Although uh, it, it's certainly reasonable to say maybe. There's nothing wrong yeah. with saying maybe about that. I agree. I agree. Um, so, Philip, look, we've spoken for nearly an hour, and, and uh, thank you, because I think you've, you've, what you've done is you've led us through a fairly complicated line of evidence. You've been very open about about where we're drawing inferences uh, between the uh, maybe maybe connected pieces of evidence. You've explained how uh, this, this whole line of argument works. My final question to you would be, where do you think the the state of the question, going back to the date, where do you think the state of the question stands in scholarship at the moment? Because I recently read uh, the latest edition of the Oxford Handbook of Christmas, where uh, I'm trying to remember his name now. Uh, uh, David. Yeah, it was David uh, Bertaner is the guy who wrote the, uh, the, the a chapter on uh, the date, and he takes it takes you through. Oh, no, sorry, the, sorry for interrupting. He writes the chapter on the Christmas tree. The 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 chapter on the date is by Paul Bradshaw. You're right. Sorry. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, this is with me quickly looking at my notes and picking up the wrong name. Um, but yeah, he 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 kind of summarizes the the state of the question, and he gets to the article that you mentioned just then by Schmidt. He gets to the article by Hymans and he gets to your article and then he effectively says, look, this kind of seems to be where the, the, the debate stands. So he's coming down on your side. Has there been any more recent stuff that has responded to you, Schmidt and, and Hymans and, and argued for the, for the older, the older, the older, um, the older theory on the date of, 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 uh, of the of the the state of the of the date question, um, so have there been responses to your your arguments? Uh, great question, Tim. So the short answer is no. Okay. Let me elaborate a little bit. So the whole reason I wrote these articles back in the day, especially the one where I defend the calculation theory, uh, was never because I was a hundred percent convinced that the calculation theory is the one true explanation of how we got December twenty fifth. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also not ideologically opposed to the idea that Sol Invictus may ha may, might have given the church some nudge towards making this date the occasion of Christmas or, or nativity feast. That, that also makes sense to a certain extent, even though it's very hard to demonstrate. I don't have any problem with this alternative explanation. The reason I wrote this article, because there was a period of time in the 20th century where the calculation theory was treated with a lot of uh, condescension as a kind of goofy idea that doesn't make a whole lot of sense and only is only out there because they're Christian apologists who want to defend Christmas against the charge that it's really pagan deep down. Hmm. And I found this attitude a bit, uh, I didn't agree with that. I thought it was, they, people made it too easy for themselves and they didn't really try to understand the argument and it didn't try to understand the evidence. And so I just tried to steel man this calculation theory by, uh, trying to forestall certain criticisms that had been leveled against it and by also just broadening the basis of sources that can be applied to it or, in, or it can be applied in its favor. 
And that was my whole intention. I think, and that was also uh, the opinion of scholars before me, that maybe ultimately both of these explanations, these competing explanations have a grain of truth and, and that the ultimate explanation might involve both of them. Of course, we don't really, we can't really arrive at the ultimate explanation because our sources are so difficult. They're just fraught with these compounding difficulties. And I've, I've pointed some of them out bef- uh, during our discussion. And I think what's happened since my publication, and also thanks to Tom Schmidt, uh, who complements what I wrote very, very nicely, and I, I think his work is very interesting. Of course, it's also speculative, just like my arguments. But we've arrived at a situation where he can no longer dismiss the calculation theory. And, and Bradshaw's chapter reflects that. And that's really all I wanted to accomplish, right? Yeah, look, and I think that's that's a really good thing because, again, people can get dogmatic about this stuff. I've shared your article and, and Tom Schmidt's article with someone a little while ago and they came back and said, this feels like apologism. I'm like, well, <laughs> these guys are not apologists. And I think what you've done very nicely today is made it clear how scholarship works. It's not about being dogmatic and saying this is definitely what happened. You're acknowledging that because of the nature of our sources, both sides of this potential argument uh, are actually overlapping and also depend on inference and speculation because that's just the nature of ancient history. You, you, you know, I, people don't get this get this concept because they probably don't read sources and don't read scholarship. They just read popular works. But this is how it works. You know, you, you're, you're constantly dealing with uncertain, fragmentary sources where this could be interpolated later we don't know, maybe, let's acknowledge that, but if it wasn't, let's move on. So I think you've, you've actually been able to um, make clear for us how the process works, and then I'll, I'll link to your article or, or cite your article on those by Schmidt and, and Heimans so that people can read them for themselves and, uh, and, and get the detail on this stuff. But I really would like to thank you for, um, for joining us today and for getting into the kind of technical detail that we love on History for Atheists. We like we like getting down into the weeds. So it's been great fun for me and hopefully the listeners as well. So, uh, Phil, thank you very much and uh, happy Christmas, dash Saturnalia, dash uh, Sol Invictus. Happy Christmas to you, sir. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Philip Nothaft. If you want to understand the details of the calculation theory better, I'll list his paper and those by Stephen Hemans and Thomas Schmidt that we referred to in the description for this episode. And if you're watching or listening to this at Christmas time, have a great festive season and see you again here soon. This has been another History for Atheists podcast. If you've enjoyed this show, please subscribe today. You can also subscribe to the History for Atheists YouTube channel for video versions of this and other shows. Or to the original History for Atheists blog for an even more extensive collection of detailed articles on how to avoid errors about religious history. Have a great day.